taught you asked. (laughs) Welcome to We Thought You Asked, a podcast where we chat about life, our pop culture vices, and give lots of unsolicited advice and opinions for free. I'm Tori. And I'm Kelly. And let's hop into the show. Hey, Kelly. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm a little bit tired. I uh, uncharacteristically stayed up late last night binging the finale of Clickbait. And then (laughs) Max decided to wake up at 5.30 this morning, bright and cheery-eyed. So uh, yeah, I'm not someone who can fall back asleep once I'm up in the morning. So I too have been up since 5.30. (laughs) And I am not typically a morning person. So struggling a little bit right now. You know, we have a lot of friends here in Bali who are very pro- sleeping in separate rooms from your partners. They tout so many benefits. You get much better sleep. It's a little bit more exciting. And Max and I are definitely not there. But I do see the benefit of that today. (laughs) When you're operating on zero sleep, it sounds appealing to you to have a separate bedroom. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) I can appreciate that in the moment. I do not do well without enough sleep. And by enough sleep, I mean like at least seven hours of sleep. If I have anything less nowadays... I am exhausted. I feel like my brain is running in slow motion. So yeah, I mean, I definitely could appreciate in those moments and those days being like, uh, please get away from me. But mm-hmm. <laughs> overall, my policy is I like us going to bed together around the same time. Like, I think it's good for us and our relationship kind of having a similar sleep time, a similar wake up time, like routine. Um, But, you know, teach their own. Some people like having a separate space and you do you. Yeah, Max and I totally agree. And that's why we're not there yet. We always say that the most fun part of being in a relationship is getting to have a sleepover with your best friend every night. However, our sleep habits are very different. And when he's keeping me awake at night, eh, sometimes it's not the most fun having to sleep over with your best friend. (laughs) Yeah, I can appreciate that. You know, luckily, Brian and I have gotten into a routine of going to bed at the same time each night, pretty much. Brian does work on East Coast time, so he tends to get up a little bit earlier than me. I do sleep in a tiny bit later than him, but for the most part, we're on a similar sleep schedule. So enough about boring sleep talk. How was your vacation this weekend? It was so nice. We have not been on vacation literally since my birthday, which is at the beginning of December. It was our first time packing up, getting away from our town, staying in a hotel. So it was really, really nice. We went with two of our other friends up to Cedaman, which is kind of like low mountains in Bali. So it was a little bit chilly. It's gorgeous views. It's like right in the valley with rice fields galore. It was beautiful. We definitely had some rain, but it was so much fun. We hiked to a waterfall and I loved it. It was just really nice to get away for a couple days. The only difficult part was we decided to drive our motorbike and it's only like an hour and a half away from here, but (laughs) that sounds like a long time on a motorbike. It really is. And you know, there's a lot of traffic in Bali. So we're used to like going to shorter distances, but you're still on your bike for about that amount of time and it's fine. But 
Oh my gosh, we were so sore when we got there. So sore the next day. Um, we just went for the weekend. And then by the time we got back, I was just like, I can't move. I feel like a 90 year old woman. My knees hurt, my hips hurt, my back hurts. It was pretty brutal. So we were like, okay, maybe next time we'll just get a driver. It's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, definitely a different way of life over there. Yeah, absolutely. And most of the time, I love riding a motorbike. It is so much fun. But But as we get closer into rainy season again, I do see the value of having a car. I've always said I never want a car again in my life. But, you know, there are definitely some positives to it as well. Like shelter from the elements. (laughs) Exactly. How are you? Good. Things are going well. I've just been busy, you know, lots happening, a lot going on with work and then having a lot more events coming up in our life, which is so different because obviously with this last year and a half and COVID, not really a whole lot going on in general. And then now life is not back to normal, but kind of. Um, We're going to a wedding reception this weekend for some of our really good friends. And this is the third time, I believe, that they have had to postpone it. So super excited. It's happening. But yeah, just stuff like that. Just trying to kind of get back in a rhythm of not feeling overwhelmed by everything and over committing, but also like pushing myself a little bit because I'm just not used to doing stuff. So trying to find that balance there. Yeah. And it's hard. I was such an extrovert. I was so social before COVID happened. I was with my friends pretty much all day, every day. Um, Living in Bali, obviously, most people don't work traditional hours. So we were just together all of the time. And that's what I thrived off of. And now it's difficult to get back to who I was pre-COVID and finding myself exhausted. And I'm like, okay, if I'm doing something on Thursday, then I probably don't want to schedule anything for Wednesday or maybe even Tuesday because I need to keep my energy up. Yeah, And it's I don't know if I'll return to that person and lifestyle that I had pre-COVID or what? Yeah. I mean, I have the reverse experience of you. I've definitely always been an introvert. So I have um, experienced during the last year and a half of COVID, like feeling surprised by going a bit stir crazy. Um, Normally, I'm very content in my free time, like being a homebody and just hanging out around the house and watching TV or just relaxing and reading or coloring or whatever. But there's only so much of that you can do. And when you actually can't see your friends at all, or like see the people that you normally socialize with, um, I think it gets to you no matter what extreme you're on, you know, or what end of the like introvert, extrovert spectrum you're on. So yeah, I think right now I have like part of myself that's super excited and eager to socialize and do stuff. And that part is the part that I've got to pay attention to because I have a tendency to like want to overcommit when I'm excited. So I have to kind of just like feel it out and and recognize that like maybe before something that wouldn't make me totally exhausted in the past, like actually is going to make me totally exhausted. So similar to you kind of like trying to like find that new normal. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I saw this question come up in one of the groups that I'm in, and I thought it would be an interesting thing to discuss. So the person asked, 
There's a thin line between being vulnerable and oversharing. Where do you think that line lies? This can mean in life, work, friends, dating, marriage, etc. And I thought this was definitely an interesting question to ask too with all of our recent talks about reality TV and oversharing, being vulnerable, social media. What do you think? I think it is an interesting question. What comes up for me is vulnerability is typically something that we do when we're trying to connect with people that we care about. So if we're being vulnerable, you know, it's taking off a layer of ourselves and showing it to someone that hopefully we trust. It's not really showing it to the world and every single person, right? And I know that that gets used a lot, like people are being vulnerable, quote unquote, on social media. Well, I'm not sure that I define vulnerable in that way. I think that you can share a lot on social media. That's true. But I think vulnerability is really more about human connection and about deepening our relationships with people. And how we do that is we show them parts of ourselves that are raw or are, you know, we're not necessarily the most proud of or that we're working on or, you know, not not our not our perfections, but they're those deeper layers that are more complicated and what make people complex. And so um, I think, you know, oversharing to me, what comes up first is like boundaries, you know, are you word vomiting on someone and not asking their permission if it's okay to talk about these things? Or like, are you just unloading so you feel better, but then that other person walks away feeling a little traumatized by everything that just got dumped on them, you know? That's kind of, I know it's probably an oversimplification of those two terms, but that's what comes up for me when you ask the question. What about you? I think that's a really interesting take that you just mentioned. However, I don't know, I kind of have to disagree, especially because we have been talking about reality TV and social media. I think that you can be vulnerable in a public space. For example, people have conditions that maybe they don't know anyone in their immediate circle who has this condition, whatever it may be. And if they connect to someone on social media and that person's being vulnerable and they do form a real connection because of that, do you consider that oversharing? I think that's fair. I think that, you know, maybe there are ways to be vulnerable, you know, on a bigger platform. I think that's probably true and fair. I think for me, what comes to mind mostly is like vulnerability in what is the purpose, right, of being vulnerable. Because our actions can be similar, but the intent behind them can make them very different. You know, like maybe the overshare is the same thing in one situation that would be considered vulnerable in another situation. And so I think, yeah, I think it really depends. I think being vulnerable, part of it is about being introspective and about sharing something to connect with people. Would you agree with that? At least I think you're trying. Part of vulnerability is being open and honest about your imperfections, about, you know, things that you're struggling with, whatever the case may be, um, in order to have real connections with other people. Absolutely. And that may be that you have something in common and can connect with that on that level. Or maybe it's just you're deepening your relationship with that person by sharing a part of you that you don't show to the rest of the world. So okay, I want to ask what what about specifically vulnerability versus oversharing in a relationship like a dating or marriage relationship? What are your thoughts on that? 
You know, I think it really depends on the specifics of a relationship. But if we're talking like a long-term committed romantic relationship, I think that there really isn't such a thing as oversharing. I think it's important to be able to have really tough conversations with your partner when you're in a long-term relationship. And I think it's a really hard thing to do at the same time. I think there's things that we're all afraid to talk about or ashamed of or worried that the other person will judge us even if we know that they love us. Um, But I think that oftentimes in long-term healthy, I'm talking about healthy relationships here, but long-term committed healthy relationships, the things we don't want to talk about are the things that we really do need to talk about, you know? And so I think there really isn't oversharing. Maybe pick your moment. Like maybe not every moment is a great one to just dump everything onto a person. But I think there is no oversharing when it comes to a long-term partnership. What are your thoughts? I think that's hit the nail on the head perfectly. I think those things that we try to keep closer to us are our most intense vulnerabilities. And that is scary to say to anyone, let alone someone that we love and care about as much as a long-term partner. When you do open up, truly does take your relationship to a deeper level, to a more open place where you maybe don't feel so vulnerable sharing these things anymore, your insecurities or whatever they may be. If you can confidently go up to your partner and share those things and bounce ideas off of them or have them support you through whatever your challenges are, like that's what makes a relationship so incredible. That's the real value in it to me. And I mean, again, that can be a friendship relationship as well or a different type of familial relationship. But yeah, I think when we can share a little bit more, it really leads to deeper, more beautiful relationships. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that is a personal growth thing too. When we can be vulnerable with our partner, especially our romantic partner, you know, I think that it takes some of the power away from from some of those things that we're scared to talk about. Like some of those things that we hold really close to us and we're afraid to say out loud, they really feel much more powerful than they are when we start talking about them. And I think if you have a secure relationship, whether it is a friendship or a romantic relationship or a family relationship, if you have a secure, safe place to not even feel confident talking about those, but just talk about them, even though they're scary and they're hard to talk about, I think that that just helps us all grow as people and it helps us become healthier versions of ourselves. Absolutely. And I think you made such a great point that sometimes you feel something inside of you and you don't want to say it out loud. And that's sometimes the scariest part. Even if there's not anyone in front of you, it can be scary to just vocalize these fears or insecurities or whatever it may be that you've been feeling deep down but trying to kind of hide. So I think that's a really valuable aspect of being vulnerable with someone that you're in a relationship as well. Absolutely. So good question. Thank you to the girl on Facebook who posted that. Again, if you guys have questions, if you want advice, make sure to go to our Instagram page, which is at we thought you asked and click on the link in our bio. We have a Google form on there where you can anonymously submit questions, comments, um, advice that you're wanting for us to give to you or just hot takes on things going on in the world today. And we'll talk about them here on the pod. Or feel free to send us a DM if you don't care if it's anonymous or not. We would love to have a conversation with you. 
So I thought we can transition to talking about something that's been all over the news and online lately. I know it's not as lighthearted as what we've been talking about, but I think it's a really important thing to bring up. Um, And that's the Gabby Petito case that's going on. Has that been something that you've been following, Kelly? Yeah, I've actually been following it quite closely. So I am up to date on it. For anyone who may be unaware, Gabby Petito and her fiance, Brian Laundrie, were doing a cross-country road trip, essentially living the van life, quote-unquote. And she went missing last month. And he ended up back in Florida at his parents' home. He drove her van, which is what they were traveling in, back to his parents' house. And she was missing. They just found her body, I believe it was two days ago. On Sunday. Yeah, we're recording this on Tuesday. Yeah. And unfortunately, she was murdered. Brian, her fiance, is now missing as well, believed to have run away or be hiding from the authorities. So we're just going to talk about it. This has obviously been covered by a lot of the media, a lot of social media right now. So it is a really hot topic. And we want to dig into a couple of the key issues for the coverage in this case. So, Tori, where do you want to start? There's just so much to unpack here. Um, You know, I think first, just starting with, obviously, this is such a tragic situation. And I think, you know, with as much attention has this has attracted online, on social media, on the news, um, it almost gets sensationalized, you know, where people forget that this is actually a human being who unfortunately was murdered. And I think that just, you know, taking a moment to appreciate the gravity of the situation and not just focus on all of the details surrounding it and the ongoing search for Brian Laundry, um, I think is really important. Absolutely. I think we talk on this podcast a lot in our short three episodes about the positives and the negatives of social media. In this case, really revolves around social media. She was an aspiring social media star. And now this case has been picked up by primarily TikTok. And it has gone viral. There are so many clues to this case that have come out so quickly, probably because of social media. Um, if Again, if you don't follow it closely, a YouTube family was driving through the park, a campground, where Gabby and Brian were camping. They caught their van on camera, and ultimately, that led to police finding Gabby's body just a few days later. So that really was the crack in this case, to getting her found so quickly. Because again, Brian is not speaking at all. He obtained a lawyer upon returning home. So we have no thoughts. We have no comments from him whatsoever. And I don't think that this would have been solved near... I mean, obviously, it's not fully solved, but solved in that we know where she is, which obviously is devastating for her family. But at least they have some answers now. And... TikTok essentially was 
a huge part of getting this case out. That's why that family was looking through their footage. That's why they recognized the van is because of all the attention that this case has been getting on social media. And that's an amazing and amazing thing. It's a beautiful tool in cases like this where it can bring a lot more attention than the FBI is able to get otherwise. So that's great. But I think there's also the flip side of it is this is now entertainment. People are trying to gain followers by covering this story, by sensationalizing, as you said, this story. And at the end of the day, these are real people. A woman was murdered. And that's not okay. It's not okay to make this an entertainment piece. What are your thoughts on it? I agree. I think that, you know, it's a really tough line because there absolutely have been, at least from what I've seen and like the situation that you described with the family finding the video footage on their um, or the van on their video footage when they were editing it to post on social media. Like these things are were invaluable to finding her and they wouldn't have happened if there wasn't so much talk and so much interest on social media about this case in particular. And I think you can't discount the good that comes from this, you know, but I think it's also very important to recognize what you just said. I think that there are people online on social media that are trying to benefit from it by getting engagement and followers and posting very irresponsible things that are not factual or true. And I think that it gets really complicated because this is a very complicated situation. It's a very complicated case. It's confusing. And I think that people are genuinely interested because of all of these aspects of this case. But I think it also becomes really problematic when you have a lot of misinformation about things like domestic violence and the case in general and mental health floating around online. Um, You know, I know we've talked about the fact that I'm I am a mental health therapist and I personally have seen a lot of misinformation about mental health and domestic violence surrounding this case online and I think you know it makes sense that people want to know they want to fill in the blanks um but what concerns me is that a lot of the th- misinformation that I've seen floating around is being reported as factual and I think that that is problematic for a variety of reasons. And it's problematic, again, when people are just reporting whatever their opinions are as if they're facts and they have a really, really large following of people that are taking that in and they're not gathering information from other sources and they're just repeating these things, you know? Absolutely. And that brings up a great point that If you wanted to touch on this topic, I think it would be really interesting for our listeners as well as myself. I don't know if you know, but Gabby and Brian were pulled over by the police about 10 days before she went missing, and it was deemed a domestic violence dispute. She was deemed the aggressor. They ultimately did not charge her with any crime, but the police video came out of this one hour long situation encounter that they had with Brian and Gabby. And they were very buddy buddy with Brian. They were very accusatory to Gabby. And Gabby admitted that she hit him. Brian mentioned that Gabby hit him. 
And the witness that called the police in the first place also mentioned that Gabby hit him. Now, I think yesterday, a new 911 call was released that mentioned that Brian was hitting Gabby, which is different information than what we were given. There's been a lot of talk on social media about how Gabby was mentally ill, that Gabby was hitting Brian, that it was an unhealthy domestic violence relationship where Gabby was the aggressor. However, I don't think that the case is nearly that cut and dry. I don't think that's how domestic violence necessarily unfolds. And I do think it's a little bit more complicated than a lot of people who don't have a background in mental health are able to explain. So can you touch a little bit on your thoughts on this entire relationship from what you've seen? Obviously, we don't know anything about the relationship. We're not them. We don't know them. But I'm just really interested to hear your thoughts on what type of relationship they had. Sure. And obviously, there's so much that I don't know, right, that I'm not privy to. And so I can't go into detail about their specific situation. But what I can do is I can talk about, you know, the things that I've read, the things that I've seen, and these situations, these domestic violence and mental health situations in general. And I think that that might be helpful for a lot of people to hear just because it is really complicated. And, you know, if you, if this isn't something that you've studied for a very long time and that you continue to educate yourself on and work with on a regular basis, it's really easy to understand why people would be confused because it is so complicated. And um, so I think the first thing that I think is worth mentioning is that police really don't have a lot, if any, mental health training. They are not mental health professionals, law enforcement, you know, depending on the agency, you know, I'm not sure about like the FBI per se, they might have more. I, I don't know that. But I know that the police officers that were responding to this domestic violence um, call probably had very little, if any, mental health training. They are not mental health professionals, to my knowledge. They're trained in law enforcement. And yet, law enfor- local law enforcement is often who is responding to these situations, whether we're talking about domestic violence or we're talking about mental health issues. You know, they are often the first responders. And so I think that it's really complicated because you're asking someone to go in and intervene in a situation that they really just are not equipped to intervene in. And I'm really lucky where I live, there is an organization called PERT, which it stands for the Psychiatric Emergency Response Team. And what that is, is it's a licensed mental health therapist who actually goes out with the police on some 911 calls where they believe that there is a mental health issue. And the mental health therapist can kind of be a liaison and they can actually be the first line of person doing these questions and interviews and kind of help explain to the responding officers their impression on the situation. And I think that that's really helpful, but that's just really not a reality in a lot of these situations. And so I think that, you know, the officers are obviously trying to figure out what's happening 
And they are not mental health professionals. They likely don't understand. I believe in one of the videos that I saw, um, Kelly, correct me if I'm incorrect, but I think Gabby had mentioned that she has OCD. Is that right? She did. And I, I couldn't tell by the way she was saying it, if it was she was using it as a figure of speech or if she's been actually diagnosed with OCD. Same. I had that those same questions too, because um, she mentioned it in relation to cleanliness, which is often how OCD is misused um, in like our common um, dialogue, our vernacular. People all, all often say, oh, I'm so OCD. Like I like everything a certain way. I like things to be super clean. But that's not obsessive compulsive disorder at all. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is having these undesirable obsessive thoughts and then having the urge to perform compulsive behaviors to make those thoughts go away. And people with OCD are not violent. That is something that is very manageable, although it's hard. It is a mental illness, you know? And so whether she herself had OCD or if she had another mental health issue, I think it's really important to normalize the fact that a lot of people walking around have even serious mental health issues, you know? That doesn't mean that they're a danger. That doesn't mean that someone with a mental health issue is going to create a scenario. And it certainly doesn't mean they're violent. There is absolutely no connection between someone having a mental health issue like obsessive compulsive disorder, like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. There's not there's not a strong connection with people with mental health issues being violent offenders. That is such a misconception. And so I think, unfortunately, you know, it was probably a combination of things that happened in this situation with the police really not having mental health training. And, you know, we come to situations with our own biases. She was very emotionally dysregulated in the response, and he seemed very, very calm, cool, calm, and collected, you know? And I think that that influences the way people perceive these events happening. I think, unfortunately, when we're talking about domestic violence, it is a very slow process to someone getting to the point where they are physically injured in a domestic violence situation. And I think that's really important to recognize because domestic violence situations, relationships that have violence in them and abuse in them, they don't start off on the first couple of dates with someone being violent. They start off with you know, you feeling really good in the situation. Things are really happy. Things are great. You're, you know, you're in love. Oftentimes they, you know, progress really quickly and you feel like you're the center of, you know, this person's world and it feels very intense and happy and joyful. And slowly things start happening in the relationship that are abusive, that are unhealthy. And those things happen slowly. That's why people stay. You know, if all of a sudden you showed up to a date with someone that you were dating and they started throwing things, screaming and, you know, threatening you from leaving and going out with your friends and family, this happened like in, in the blink of an eye, you know, 
a lot of people would get up and walk away. You know, that would not be a situation you stay around. But because it's such a slow progression and because, you know, it started off with this passion, with this excitement, with this positivity, it affects our men- it affects us mentally in a different way and people start making excuses they are hopeful that you know things will get better that they'll change and the really big point that i want to communicate here is that you know not only are they hopeful that things will change but a lot of people do not think that an unhealthy relationship is abusive if violence has not occurred in that relationship. And I think that's the biggest misconception that we really, really need to break down and take away from this incident is that violence in relationships does not happen in abusive relationships or in relationships does not happen until it does. Just because the relationship has not gotten violent yet does not mean in any capacity that it is not going to get violent. And I think we have to look at what are the warning signs that we see. And if anything, we need to be overly cautious rather than minimizing these types of things. And what we do know is that relationships where there is abuse, it is extremely dangerous when someone leaves. I don't know if Gabby was trying to leave the relationship or not, but we know that one of the most dangerous Parts of an abusive relationship is when one partner, the victim, tries to leave. We also know that there is an escalation process, that it starts off with psychological, emotional abuse, and that grows into other things. And a lot of people minimize throwing and breaking things during a fight. That's actually a progression of domestic abuse. And so I think that the more conversations that we can have around what abuse actually looks like versus what we would like to think that it looks like, then we'll all be better off because we can help support the people that we care about when they're in these types of situations a little bit better. I know that was a lot there that I just threw at you, but (laughs) that's I think it's really important to talk about a lot of these things. I think it's one thing that's not being covered anywhere near the degree of other aspects of this case because it may not be as interesting to most people. But I think it's one of the most valuable aspects of this entire situation is really understanding how domestic abuse looks. And it doesn't look like how we think it does. Gabby blamed herself. She admitted that she hurt him, that she was a lot of things in this encounter with the police. But that is something that happens in violent relationships often, correct me if I'm wrong, that victims blame themselves. That's correct. And a lot of the reasoning for that is the gaslighting that's done. For those listeners that are not familiar with that term or maybe heard it but aren't clear on what it is. Gaslighting is when someone tells you the reality you know to be true is not true. So for example, Kelly, if I were to say, do you remember earlier when we were talking about your vacation this weekend and you were to tell me, we never talked about that. What are you talking about? Like that never came up, was not part of the conversation. Nope, didn't happen. And you just said it in such a convincing way. I might start to like pause and say, did we? actually talk about your vacation? I was pretty confident we did, but maybe I'm wrong. That's gaslighting. And 
In abusive relationships, gaslighting happens when the abuser denies the reality of the situation. When a fight happens and they say, I never said that. I never threw that. You're the one actually that threw that. Over time, this repeated gaslighting, it breaks down your confidence that your reality is true. And so there may be a lot of reasons or there are a lot of potential reasons why she was blaming herself for that. And I don't know in her situation, so I can't speak to that. But what I can say is that it would not be uncommon in an abusive relationship for the abuser to gaslight the person being abused and tell them that they initiated the fight, that it was their fault, that their mental health issues were the cause. Yeah, I, I think we kind of saw that in the police cam video of the reasoning of the fight is Brian said that Gabby was being a little bit crazy. He decided that she needed to calm down. So they would go their separate ways, calm down. He wanted the keys, though. But in this new 911 call that came out, it was pretty apparent based on what the caller was saying that Brian was trying to lock Gabby out of the van. Potentially, he did this a lot. I mean, they both mentioned that this was kind of a fear of theirs that the other person would leave in the van. So I think there was a lot of control that Brian had over Gabby, especially because she mentioned that she didn't feel comfortable driving the van. So I think Brian likely had the keys more frequently than she did. I just don't feel like this was probably the first incident like this that has happened. I would have to agree with you on that. I would say, you know, this is likely not the first incident like this that has happened at all. And again, we don't know their relationship. We don't know what happened. We can make assumptions that, again, Brian probably was abusive towards Gabby. Gabby may or may not have hit him that day, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't abusive to her if she hit him in response. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, there's also this common misconception that there are relationships, abusive relationships where both people are abusive towards each other. And that is unfortunately something that prevents the actual victim in an abusive relationship from getting help because it is not uncommon for someone who's being abused to fight back in self-defense. It's also not uncommon for them not to fight back in self-defense. You know, like it really is situation dependent, but these situations are really scary. You know, these situations escalate and they're really scary and Victims of abusive relationships, victims of domestic violence are often fearful for their safety and their lives. And I think someone fighting back, slapping back in this case, what we're talking about hypothetically is, you know, if Gabby was fighting back, what does that say? Well, that to me says that she's scared and that she's doing what she can to try to protect herself. It's not surprising that she did slap him. It's not surprising that, you know, she did what she could to try to protect herself. Thank you for touching on that subject. I think it's really important to have real mental health professionals who understand the cycle of abuse and can recognize it a lot better than what the general public can. To touch on this case, to shed light on what domestic violence actually can look like, because this is a great example to show that it's not what the public thinks it looks like. It can be what the public thinks it looks like, but it can also be a million other things. And it's such a case 
case-by-case basis. It's so unique to every relationship, but, but there are specific factors that play into abuse that you know about because you've studied this, that mental health professionals know about because they've studied it. And I think it's just so important to teach others how to recognize abuse when it looks a little bit different than they think it does. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I think these are really important conversations to have come out of this. And I think, you know, my hope from our conversation today, I know this is part of a very, a much bigger conversation, but my hope is that the takeaway is that domestic violence does not escalate to the point of someone getting killed overnight. And so we really need to take seriously those warning signs of relationships that have escalated to the point of violence and fatalities. We really need to look at those early warning signs of those relationships and stop normalizing things like, you know, her best friend saying that he stole her ID so she couldn't go dancing these controlling behaviors, these emotionally and psychologically abusive behaviors, we really need to give gravity to because they're, they are really serious. And that those are the signs that this relationship could potentially be he- heading to a place where someone is in a lot of danger. And then, you know, my second takeaway that I hope it comes from this conversation is that a lot of people struggle with their mental health. I personally argue that we all do. I think every single person on this planet, because we're human, has a mental health struggle. I think that there are a lot more people out there that are struggling with a mental health diagnosis than any of us think that there are. Because just because you haven't been diagnosed so far doesn't mean you're not struggling with one, right? And so... I think that we really need to start talking about what does mental health look like? What does it not look like? And really take away some of the stigma around mental health. In Gabby's case, part of my heart hurts. I think that sometimes when people are having anxiety, when people are feeling very overwhelmed or they're scared, they're not in a place where they can articulate their thoughts because they are genuinely, understandably so emotional, I think that they're not taking us seriously as someone that can speak from a composed way. And that really needs to change. We really need to understand the way that mental health impacts us and our ability to ask for help, to ask for support, you know, to actually fully understand the situation we're in in the moment. I think that the only way that we can do that is to have these types of conversations, you know, where we're operating from facts rather than spreading misinformation around that. Absolutely. And if that's what we can do with this conversation, then we've definitely met our goal. Again, there's so much misinformation going around on social media and the media in general regarding this case and regarding their relationship dynamics and abuse dynamics. So if we can add a little bit of clarity to help someone understand that a little bit more, then I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know that this was definitely a heavier topic for us to touch on and end on today, but I appreciate you guys for sticking with it. This is a very tragic case, and I hope that there is justice brought at the end of this case. And I think that it's important that we don't let this case get swept away in social media, but we really look at the reality of what happened here. And I encourage you, if you're wanting to know more about mental health 
health and domestic violence, please look up organizations that specialize in these things and clarify from people that really understand these concepts, not just the influencers that you're following right now. And if you're located in the United States, I'm going to leave the domestic violence hotline as well as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in today's show notes. And if you know someone who's struggling with domestic violence or mental health issues, those are a great resource to reach out to to get some support on how to help the people in your lives too. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. And we will see you guys next week. All right. See you guys then. Bye. 